was last time that I preached to you on uh, the Lord's Day evening, I left my uh, sermon at home, uh, and Megan kindly ran back and got it for me. Uh, this evening, uh, my printer failed to print, so I was able to bring uh, the actual computer with me, on which my sermon is typed, and so uh, anyway, so hopefully, Lord willing, we will... Uh, I will be able to preach from that. I have never preached from actually having a computer screen uh, in front of me. Uh, Maybe I'll like it. I don't know. We'll see. I do invite you to turn with me, though, now to, to Psalm 119. We've been studying consecutively through uh, this great psalm, the long psalm, 176 verses arranged in 22 stanzas of eight verses each, corresponding to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, So today we come uh, to verses 57 uh, through 64, Uh, verses 57 through uh, 64. Now hear God's word. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. This ends this reading in God's uh, word. Let's now look once again to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for the blessing that it is, especially the way that the Psalms direct our devotional life. Uh, Lord, we pray that our experience would match that of the psalmist, that we would be as quick to entreat your favor and as quick to offer ourselves to you in loving obedience as King David was. Lord, direct our inward life, we pray, and bless us this evening as we would consider your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. One of the humorous lines from the beginning of C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is when the professor uh, says, logic, what do they teach in the schools today? Well, logic is a wonderful thing uh, for you and I to know. It's also something good for the Christian uh, to know. In fact, I think there's something which could be called a kind of gospel logic. 
That is, there is a proper order uh, to uh, the grace of God and our obedience to the Lord. And we dare not confuse that order. It is that God's grace alone brings sinners into a restored fellowship with God. And you and I are brought into that restored fellowship through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ alone. And it is when we are saved by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, that then we respond to that grace with a life of obedience. And so the Christian delights to walk in God's commandments But the reason that we delight to do it is always because they are the commandments of my God who has saved me by his amazing grace. There's a gospel logic to grace and works. We find this actually in the giving of the Ten Commandments themselves. We think of the Ten Commandments, rightly so, as the supreme Uh, giving of of the law of God, and yet there's a preface to those Ten Commandments in which the Lord tells the people of Israel, I am the Lord thy God who has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The Lord saved his people, made them uh, his people. He became their God, and therefore they were to obey his commands. And it's understanding this gospel logic that makes us recognize how it is that Psalm 119 is the Christian's psalm. It should be upon the Christian's lips. This psalm, as we have seen, uh, has as much to say about the law of God and the goodness of God's law and of obedience to God's law. But why should we, as Christians, obey the law of God? It is because by His grace, He is our God. There's a gospel logic. And I think that is especially evident in these verses that we have uh, before us today, this kind of gospel logic between God's grace and our obedience. And so I want these two things to frame our study of uh, this psalm, or this section of Psalm 119 this evening. First of all, we are going to see uh, the priority of God's grace. We'll see this in verses 57, 58, and then in the final verse, verse 64. And then secondly, we are going to see the obedient response that grace calls for. The obedient response that grace calls for. And we'll see this primarily in verses 59 through 63. Well, first of all, the priority of God's grace. This uh, psalm begins... Uh, with verse uh, 57, he says, The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. That word portion simply means he's my share. He's my inheritance. A portion is, uh, as it were, the possession that matters to us the most. You know, that was really the issue, as we saw this morning in that church in Laodicea, like... Uh, many today, uh, they were looking for their portion in this life. Uh, they were rich, outwardly, materially. And in those 
earthly riches, they, as it were, found their share, and their hearts were then dead to God. But, dear friends, the Christian ought not to find our share in earthly riches, but rather our prized possession should be the Lord God himself. Jesus teaches this in uh, any number of places. You can think, for example, of that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, uh, chapter, or Luke chapter 16 and uh, verse 25. Uh, there was uh, the, the poor man, Lazarus, known by God, loved by God, yet poor in this life. And then there was the rich man. Uh, but then we read in Luke 16 and verse uh, 25, Abraham saying these words to uh, the rich man. He says, Abraham says to him, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. His portion was when? In this life. And as a result, he experienced the anguish of hell forever. Or you could think of uh, that, uh, that, that rich fool who built bigger and bigger barns, Luke chapter 12 and verses 19 and 20. He was also one who sought to find his portion in this life. Luke 12, 19. He said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Where is your portion? Is your treasure in this life or is it in the Lord your God? And the Christian is one who is to find his portion in God. He is the one who satisfies me. I don't need to envy the the rich and the successful and the famous of, of this life. Because I have far, far more if I have, the God, if I have the Lord as my portion. He alone satisfies me. Everything else will ultimately disappoint. The Lord is my portion uh, forever. What a wonderful thing it is to say the Lord is my portion. You know, many people all around us say the words, my God when they say it, it's an awful profanity. They use it as a kind of a curse word, a sort of note of exclamation. But dear friends, on the lips of the Christian, who with awe and love and adoration in his heart can sincerely say the words, my God, they are the sweeter, sweetest words that can ever be uttered. He is mine, and I am his. He is my portion. And so if God is our portion as a Christian, then it means that his favor towards us is better than life itself. And that's what we read of in verse 58. He says, I entreat your favor with all of my heart. That's the cry of the Christian, isn't it? Lord, I need your favor. I can't earn it. I can't secure it on my own. My works, my money, my talents, my pedigree... None of that secures your favor. I can't demand your grace. But rather, O Lord, I pray that you would look upon me in your grace. 
So we take the position of a humble suppliant, seeking the mercy and favor of the king. But friends, when we try to look to the Lord for his grace, we can do so with confidence because he has promised to be merciful to us in his word. We see that at the end of verse 58. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. How can you and I have any confidence that this God is a God of grace toward needy sinners? Well, it's because he said so time and again in his word. If you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 8, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's a word of promise. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Are you burdened with your sin? He says, come to me and I will give you rest. It's a word of promise of his mercy. Uh, 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 Jesus, uh, who, who says, uh, what is the words? John uh, 6 and verse 40, the words of, of Christ himself, that wonderful gospel promise. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. How can we be assured of His mercy? Well, look to Jesus. And He says that you will be saved and raised up on uh, the last day. Do you know what it is to plead the promises of God? To, as it were, put your finger on the promises of God and say, Lord, you have promised your mercy to those who come to you uh, in faith. What a wonderful word this is. God is a God who is gracious to his people. He's our portion. He's the one whose favor we entreat. And then if we look at the last verse of uh, this section of Psalm 119, verse 64, we see here an assurance of the mercy of God. See that in verse 64? The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. What's he saying? The psalmist is saying, wherever I turn my eyes, I see evidences of your steadfast love. Uh, Your providential care over the whole earth is evidence of your love. The way that you uh, feed the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, and you make the plants to grow, and you cause the sun to shine and the rain to fall. Or the way that you provide for people's needs and heal them of their sicknesses. Or the way that you give us life and breath and the joys of family and of a good meal and of friends. These are all, wherever we look, we see evidences of your loving kindness and your care in all creation. The earth, Lord, is full of your steadfast love. So the logic is simple. If we see evidence of the Lord's steadfast love everywhere that we look, how much more? How much more is that steadfast love directed towards us, the blood-bought children of God? Do you remember when Jesus used that same logic in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 6? Matthew chapter 6, that a section where he's encouraging us not to worry. And he says these words, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 28, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. You see what he's saying? 
The whole earth is full of your steadfast love. Even the lilies experience it. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? If you're a blood-bought child of God, how much more is his steadfast love directed towards uh, you? And so what this psalm is laying out is that you and I live by and we depend upon the grace of Almighty God. Undeserved, free, overabundant grace. It's our life. It's what sustains us and keeps us. It's what we need more than anything else. But you know that the Lord's grace and love is deeper than even, even, even David was able to anticipate or comprehend in this psalm. The greatest demonstration of his love is that which we chiefly see in the pages of the New Testament, the incarnation and death of Jesus Christ. Listen to these words of the writer Hal Jones. He says that the Christian is able to do more than merely echo the psalmist's words Because the Lord has shown more of his love than the psalmist could anticipate. He has shown its stupendous nature by sending his own eternal son to bear the curse of a broken covenant for his people so that they might inherit heavenly blessings begun below and consummated above. Every believer in Jesus should therefore be able to say, My portion and to do so with even more certainty and joy than the psalmist. Christians should know that they live in the Lord's love in his land, wherever they live in this fallen world, and also that every need will be met on the way to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. They have a heavenly shepherd, and they will never be either orphaned or exiled. It's the priority, dear friends of grace. And that priority of grace must ever be known in our own lives. Do you, in your Christian life, know the abundant, overflowing grace of God? Children, that's why we want you to be Christians. It is because it is the best life possible to live by the mercy and grace of our loving Heavenly Father. To know his tender care for time and eternity. We want you to know that. For it is ours only by the grace and mercy of Almighty God. How can we live without it? We need the grace of God. Do you live in his grace daily? Do you enjoy his grace? The psalmist did. Let us as well. So that's the priority of God's grace. But now secondly, as we look at this gospel logic, I want us to consider the obedient response that grace calls for. The obedient response that grace calls for. Uh, We see this actually in verse 57. The Lord is my portion. But Then what does he say? I promise to keep your words. Or we see it in that final verse, verse 64. 
The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Those that take God for their portion must take him also for their prince and swear allegiance to him. Whereas Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. The right response to the grace of God is always to give ourselves in utter obedience to Him. In fact, it's even more than that. It's part of His grace that enables us to respond in obedience. It is because He is gracious that He then teaches us His statutes and gives us the Spirit so that we will delight in them and live that whole, wonderful, obedient life that He has planned for us that we might then be conformed unto the image of His Son. It's part of His grace that, the, that we then would uh, uh, obey Him and follow His uh, statutes. So what does this obedient life lived in response to the grace of God, what does this obedient life look like? And I want to briefly point out five things that we see in verses 59 through 63, one of them per verse. The first thing about this obedience that we see is that it is intentional obedience. Intentional obedience. Verse 59, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimony. What does this psalmist do who is enraptured by the grace of God? What does he do who is taken up with seeking the favor of God? What happens to a person who is spiritually awakened? Well, notice, he or she begins to think. To have serious thoughts, perhaps for the first time. When I think on my ways, he becomes concerned with how he walks. And so it is with anybody who is spiritually awakened. Uh, you begin to ask those important questions. Who am I? Why am I here? How have I lived in the past? How should I live in the future? And this kind of thinking is one of the fruits of grace. The Christian should be one who is intentional about the way that he or she lives. To think at the beginning of the journey, of the Christian's journey, to think every step along the way uh, to heaven. Are you one who is intentional in your obedience? When uh, a, a vocational choice arises, what should I do for work? How should I, how should I live? Are, are we thinking, well, Lord, how can I do it for your service. Uh, what will this job mean about uh, how I'll spend my Sundays? Will it be with you in your house? What, what does this job mean for, am I going to have to live and if, or move? And if I move, is there, am I able to move to a place where there's a gospel church? Or in this, in this uh, line of work, is it something I can do to your service and to your praise? We begin to think in those ways. Or uh, maybe it's, a, it's somebody of the opposite gender that you're interested in. 
You begin to think, maybe I'd like to get married to that person. And you begin to, to think, well, is this person somebody who's going to help me in my spiritual walk? I want to be intentional, Lord, as I follow your commandments. Or we think before we speak. Are the words that I'm about to speak, are these words that are going to build others up or tear them down? Am I going to promote the kingdom of God with what I'm about to say? Or, or am I going to uh, uh, say foolish and rash words? You see, the Christian is one who is intentional. When I think on my ways... I turn my feet to your testimonies. Well, the second mark of the Christian's obedience is that it is immediate obedience. Verse 60. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon says that to think carefully and then to act promptly is a happy combination. In other words, when you think rightly and you become convinced that according to God's word, this line of action is the will of God, and you feel conviction in your heart about it, you need promptly to act. Do it immediately. And in fact, what you're going to find is the longer that you delay, the more your conviction will lessen. Okay, we, we speak about it in popular, uh, the popular saying, right? Strike while the iron is hot. For the Christian, that means in the moment of conviction, when you know the duty, do it. Act at that point. Uh, and we see evidence of this really uh, uh, throughout, uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, when he became convinced of his own sinfulness, he says, I will arise and go to my father. And the next thing we read is that he arose and went to his father. Or Matthew, the apostle Matthew, when Jesus said, follow me, the next thing we read, he left all, rose up and followed him. Or Zacchaeus, when he was called from that top of the sycamore tree, Jesus says, make haste, come down. Today I must abide at your house. The next thing we read is that he made haste and came down and received Jesus joyfully. The Philippian jailer, when he heard the words of Jesus to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he immediately responded by taking Paul into his home and washed uh, away or washed his wounds. You see, time and again, there was an immediacy to the response. Now, in the book of Acts, Felix is exactly the opposite. Do you remember when Paul preached before Felix and he preached to, uh, concerning uh, uh, righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come? And uh, we're told, Felix said, go away. I'll summon you some other time. He was convicted to some degree but he did not act on it. Friends, when you know the will of God, do it. Do it immediately. And so true obedience, the obedience that is in response to God's grace, is always, first of all, intentional. 
Second, it is immediate. Let me just say this. Dear friends, we need to be as prompt in our obedience as we once were in our sin. We often didn't wait when temptation came how quickly we ran into the ways of sin. Let us be as prompt in our obedience as we once were in the ways of sin. But the third characteristic of our obedience ought to be that of undeterred obedience. Undeterred obedience, verse 61. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Here David is. He's committed himself under the way of the Lord, and yet that does not keep him from trials. The cords of the wicked still ensnare him. They come to him and trap him. But notice, though he faces trial in his life, his obedience to God remains undeterred. Yet I do not forget your law. You see how opposite this is to the response of the ungodly. How do the ungodly often respond to, to difficulty in their lives? They get angry. Or they try to escape their trial by resorting to drinking or to drugs. or uh, they, they, they get depressed to try to find some other place of refuge. But for the Christian, the only true refuge to which we ought to run is God himself. And as we run to God himself, let us commit ourselves to remain obedient to him no matter what. Think about this in the life of, in the life of Job. Do you remember the trials that came upon Job's life? <laughs> they were so massive. Every possession of his taken away. His children suddenly killed. All of it happened so quickly. And then his wife begins to complain. Tells him, curse God and die. And yet we see Job. Though, faced so many tri- though he faced so many trials, he remained undeterred in his obedience. Job one twenty two. In all this, Job sinned not, nor did he charge God with evil. And can I just say to you as well, make it your conviction, no matter what comes into my life, that I'm going to allow nothing to divert me from the ways of God. Maybe it's somebody else that comes and they slander you. And what's your immediate temptation? Well, I'm going to give them a dose of their own medicine. They said that about me. Well, look what I can say about them. And we need to think, no. I need to follow the ways of God. Lord, help me. When I am, when I am cursed, help me to bless and to be kind. Because it's the way that you would have me to go. Or to give another example, at times your, your plans are going to be disappointed. And the temptation is, is going to be to complain and get bitter in your heart or maybe blame other people. But instead, what would the Lord have you do? Well, he would have you to humbly submit to his sovereign care and submit to his ways. Can we do that? Or to give another example, maybe... Uh, when tragedy strikes in your life, you don't, and the last thing that you want to do is to see the face of others, and yet you know that the Lord would have you to be in His sanctuary and worship Him. Might you say, well, no matter what, Lord, no matter what happens to me, I'm going to join with your people in the corporate worship of God and not be absent from it. 
You see, when the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. I'm going to continue to be faithful and undeterred obedience. Well, the fourth characteristic of our obedience ought to be that it is a thankful obedience. A thankful obedience. This is verse 62. At midnight I rise to praise you or even to give thanks to you because of your righteous rules. That is, our hearts ought always to be ready to thank God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He even says, at midnight, I rise to praise you. What's the point of this? The idea is, is that when he awakes in the middle of the night, his first thought is praise to God. I want to thank him. Isn't that what Paul and Silas were doing in that Philippian prison? Do you remember? When the Philippian jailer eventually was converted. At midnight, at midnight, they were singing hymns and giving thanks to God. That was their, that was their uh, uh, a way of, or that, that was what they were doing. And, and dear friends, it ought to be with us also. I think the point of this is just simply that our thoughts ought immediately and often to turn to thankfulness to God. It ought to fill up our days. That when we rise in the morning, we give thanks to God. That when we uh, put food into our mouths, we give thanks to God. Uh, that when we think upon that day's activities, that we, that we give thanks uh, uh, to God. Uh, that throughout the day, we are counting his blessings. We're giving him praise. And friends, when we do that, when we are quick to the place of thanksgiving, we're going to delight in obedience. Thanksgiving is the, is the uh, soil out of which uh, true obedience uh, grows. It's when we have a thankful heart for all of the Lord's blessings that we're going to delight to obey. So what is that obedience that responds to his grace? It's, a, it's an obedience that is always a thankful obedience. Okay? So we've seen four things so far. It's an intentional obedience, an immediate obedience, an undeterred obedience, a thankful obedience that responds to God's grace. But now fifth and finally, fifth and finally, it's, uh, it's one that finds companions in obedience. I couldn't quite think of a parallel way to say it. But we need to be those who find companions in obedience. That's verse 63. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. And the point here is simply this that it is easier to live an obedient life towards God when we are around others who are trying to do the same thing. It's easier to life, live an obedient life before God when we are surrounded by others who are seeking to do the same thing. And this means, friends, that we need to be intentional about the friendships that we make our closest friends should be those who are our friends, not chiefly because of common interests, 
nor of an attractive personality, and even less so because of what somebody else might do for you. But our chief friends ought to be those who fear God and are seeking to keep His commands. Young people, those are the friends to seek. Those are the friendships to invest in and to build. Can I simply ask you, are those the friends that you have? Are those the friendships that you are investing in? Think about David. David was a king. He was a king. And yet the companions that he sought out weren't chiefly the high and the mighty and the noble and the rich of the world. He says, I was seeking out those who were keeping the commandments of God. They were my closest. And this means as well, dear friends, that you and I ought never, ever to be ashamed of the church of Jesus Christ. You know, the church can be made up sometimes of an odd assortment of people. Okay? Who would have ever put us together? You know, we have different personalities. And you're going to find people in the church at times that you say, that, per- that person's personality, it sort of rubs me the wrong way. They have the weirdest interests. They dress in the strangest way. They're... They look a little funny. They're a different age than me. They're they're not like me at all. And at times you might be tempted, even at times, be ashamed of the church of God. Don't be ashamed of them. Here are Christ's precious people, saved by his blood, who are seeking along with you to walk in the pilgrim path according to the commands of God. Here are your best friends. And might they be your best friends as together we journey on our way to the celestial city. Church is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. He says, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Well, might it be, dear friends, that you and I would learn to live by this grace of God. But then in response to this marvelous, life-giving amazing grace that we then would seek to walk in the paths of obedience even as the psalmist did. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for Psalm 119. We thank you for its beautiful truth. It's wonderful truth. And the way it directs us, Lord, directs us first of all to your life-giving grace for needy sinners. Where would we be apart from the fact that you have been gracious unto us? We thank you as well for the way it gives direction for a life lived in obedience to you. Oh Lord, help us, we pray, to be intentional and immediate and undeterred in our obedience, to be thankful in our obedience, and to seek companions in the way of obedience. Lord, Grant that we would do this in response to your grace. Lord, that we increasingly might look like our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did love us and give himself for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.